This is Isabel Siderni, your host for Frame by Frame, a podcast that introduces you to the most influential and respected film professionals working in New York today, talking about their work and the films that continue to make New York an essential center of the global film industry. In today's episode, we'll talk with Phil Stockton, sound editor, and Tim Squires, picture editor, about working together for over 20 years on such films as Ang Lee's The Ice Storm and Life of Pi. Ice Storm was a great project for us because there's just so much room for creativity. There's actually a sound effect during the, the loud part of the ice storm. Ang wanted a little gust of wind there. What's actually in the mix is Ang at a microphone going, Frame by Frame is brought to you in partnership with Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. Our website is postnewyork.org and we can be found on Twitter at, at @postny. Today's session of Frame by Frame is hosted by Soundtrack. I started off by talking with Tim and Phil about their first collaboration in 1986, Working on the Ice Storm, a film written by James Seamus and directed by Ang Lee. The first time I, I met Tim was he and Anthony Bregman. Was he the post supervisor? He was the post supervisor. Or yes. the producer? No, I don't post remember. Supervisor. He was the post supervisor. And he and Tim came to C5 and sat with me and interviewed me. And we just sort of talked about films I'd worked on, Martin Scorsese films, and um, Spike Lee's films, and stuff like Goodfellas. And I think we all hit it off and knew that it was going to work and it would be a good relationship for for just sort of shot. I think you were shopping around a yeah. little bit at that yeah. point. Yeah, and right? I don't remember how we heard about you guys. Yeah. It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. I was, I was only like five or six years old, I think. <laughs> That's Phil Stockton, a New York-based sound editor whose credits include Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, and the Coen Brothers' Raising Arizona. In 2012, he won an Oscar for Martin Scorsese's Hugo. When we met, Phil was currently working on Martin Scorsese's Silence. I think the real reason that they contacted us initially was because the person that they had worked with on the other films up to that point was non-union. And this was a union film. It was sort of the first union film that Ang did. Yeah. And I mean, the first two, the sound editor was me. Uh-huh. And then... We actually had a little money to hire somebody for the the next two. That's film editor Tim Squires, whose credits include Stephen Gagan's Syriana, Robert Altman's Gosford Park, Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Jonathan Demme's Rachel Getting Married. At the time of the interview, Tim had just finished work on Ang Lee's Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, the first film to shoot in 4K resolution at 120 frames per second. Ice Storm was a great project for us because there's just so much room for creativity. I remember Riley Steele was our mixer, and Eugene and I were both at the board. I was doing some Foley. Eugene was doing the effects. And that's Eugene Garrity. Eugene Garrity, yes. And at a certain point, when we were doing the actual Ice Storm material, we had like eight different backgrounds going that were just sort of there on command so we could mix and match there were there was a bead sound and this and that and I mean there was you know tinkling ice but there were also whale sounds there's all kinds of stuff exactly and at a certain point Ang was he'd been directing us sort of conducting the orchestra more beads here more whale here and at a certain point we just invited him to come up to the board and labeled each fader and said this is the beads this is the 
this, that, and the other, and just sort of let him play a little bit too, and which he really enjoyed. There's actually a sound effect during the the loud part of the ice storm where uh, Elijah Wood's character is running across a field and he sort of jumps, and Ang wanted a little gust of wind there. What's actually in the mix is Ang at a microphone going. Yeah, I remember that. That's pretty fun. <laughs> there have been a lot more complicated films since, but the sort of the ratio of how much time we had and resources to what we needed to do was was quite good. So we actually got to experiment. We got to play around, and we had more time than we had for previous mixes. You know, I used to be. I mean, I used to be a supervising sound editor. I mean, not to the extent that Phil was, but you know, I used to be the guy sitting at the board with the cue sheets, and so. Ever, you know, the last 25 years, I've been just slowly backing away and letting the professionals do it. I mean, on the one hand, I do a lot of work and I have a lot of a sense of how things should sound, but you don't want to get in the way of other creative people working on the movie, and you have to give them space to be creative and, and to try out those ideas. And so, you know, that's the great thing about working with Phil and Eugene is a lot of good stuff gets added, and I go, oh, I never thought of that. Yeah. And by the same token, um, Tim has done work a lot of times on the track and brought in sound effects because, I mean, people do that more and more now. In an Avid, it's pretty easy to just have a library and bring stuff in that's needed and, and take production tracks and use them. And sometimes films can't really afford to do temps where they bring us on and do a lot of work ahead of time. So I think most editors are doing more and more, or they have their assistant put in sound effects or something just in order to have screenings and and not have big important things missing. You know, with sound things I'm just kind of doing things as they as they come along. You know, for like for dialogue, I'm necessarily the first dialogue editor because I have to kind of make it sound kind of okay. You know, and then often I asks for sound effects. Uh, I'll put in my own, but like for Life of Pi where there was just nothing, you know. We have a scene where they get swarmed by a whole school of flying fish, and there's no production sound, zero production sound, and there's a you know flying fish and a tiger and fish hitting the boat and all that, doing all that stuff. It's just in order to watch that scene and feel like you understand it, we have to do uh, a lot of sound editing. And on that film, I had a great assistant, uh, Mike Fay who really went nuts on that scene to the extent that I, I made him do a bunch of mix downs because it was so many tracks that I couldn't, you can't, at some point you can't cut picture anymore if you get too many tracks. So uh, if everything that he cut was an individual track, we probably would have had 60 tracks. And another thing that's good about Tim is like he'll do stuff, but if we come in with something better, then he doesn't get attached to what he did unless he feels it's better, and then he'll say, well, I think what I did there is better, and we'll listen, and we'll go, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. One of the first films uh, I did sound on was uh, called Dogfight with uh, River Phoenix and Lily Taylor, and I was a supervising sound editor on it. We didn't have credits, but I knew how long the credits were going to be, but we're in black for a long time, and then we fade up on know early I think it's dusk and we're at a you know a little roadside diner where a bus is pulling in and so I talked to the editor and I did this built this whole little drama that takes place there's a screen door open your footsteps 
key, the screen door opens and closes. He takes the key out, walks across gravel, gets in the car. A dog's barking over there. A gate opens. Gets in the car and drives off all in black while the credits are rolling. But I didn't see the credits. The first time I saw the credits was when we were actually in the mix. And just dumb luck, Lily Taylor's name comes up just as I had the dog bark. And rather than move the dog, the director said, uh, let's get rid of all that. It's like, oh, welcome to sound editing. And I'm sure that's happened like, to you a million oh times. God. I'll tell you mine. I was working on Raising Arizona, and there's this sort of almost like a dream sequence where the this motorcycle rider from hell is you know screaming down the road and he shoots a rabbit you know just all of this stuff and this was one of the very early stereo films that that I worked on it was a big treat to be able to work in stereo cuz everybody wasn't doing it then so I did one treatment where I had a Harley Davidson that I scraped around and found stuff from libraries and this and that and just really did like this whole job that was very realistic that you had, you know, every every sound, everything the motorcycle was doing, I nailed. And then I did this whole other version that was completely crazy with elephant roars, all kinds of crazy, whatever I could think to throw in there. And I thought, well, we could do these together and that would be kind of cool or we could do either one separately I'm not really that sure what, what they're going to want. And I did this on my own on the weekend. I was really proud of it. And I go into the mix, and we're pre-mixing it because we only had two recorders that could record in stereo. So everything had to be pre-mixed down, 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 down. And I think we had to do like two or three passes to do this and spent you know, maybe like a half a day on it. And my friends, the Cohen brothers, are sort of off to the side, and I'm kind of like looking at them, and they're not, not really saying very much. Yeah, I'm going, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. pretty much. <laughs> That's what I was doing. Like, you know, like, what do you think? What do you think? So I said, is this okay? And, the, and I think they went as far as saying, like, well, we're not real sure what we're, we want here yet. But, yeah, you keep going. It's worth pre-mixing and all this stuff. So we go through the whole thing. And we get to the final mix, and we start going through this, and I'm feeling very proud of myself. And um, at a certain point, Ethan said, well, what if we just had wind? <laughs> and I kind of went like, uh, what do you mean? He wind? goes, well, just like, you know, like sort of a dry desert wind. And I think, I don't know if I stormed out of the room. I don't re quite remember what I did, but I remember pouting later. And uh, we were all working in the same place. You know, all our, our cutting rooms were right there with the picture. And, and I'm kind of sulking. And Joel finally comes in and says, what's wrong? And I said, well, you know, I did all this. And you guys took it out. And, and he just said, oh, I'll get over it or something. <laughs> and I said, OK. <laughs> and I did. And you know, I have never gotten attached to my work uh, since then in quite the same way. I put just as much effort in it, whatever it is. But if somebody comes along and says, that's not working, I mean, if I really feel strongly, I'll argue it to a certain degree. But I'm, there's no way I'm going to yeah. storm out of the room or anything because it just happens. Yeah. You don't and, leave it in because you did a lot of work on it. Yeah. You fight for something because it's good. Yeah. Um, and but, also, I think um, scene, like scenes get cut. You, you work Like, I've worked on... What's really irritating as I've gone more into dialogue editing is that I will 
work on a scene and there's all these problems because things aren't going together well because it it really needs a little picture trim here, but I, it, it hasn't been done yet. So I craft the stuff that I work hours and hours and hours on, and then the next version comes along and they've made all, they've tightened all these things, which completely screws up all my work. <laughs> and it's actually a little bit better. But if they'd have done that in the first place, they could have saved me hours of work. And and that's it, our highest priority is saving them that hours of work. Yeah, absolutely. Every yeah. picture editor's dream is yeah. to you know how can I make this easy for yeah. the sound guys. Well, certainly for technology has changed. You know, back when the dubbers are in the back room and you had to change something, no matter what your intentions were or how much you like sound, you just couldn't do very much. Yeah. The mixer would go go get some coffee and some guy would go pull it, pull the reels down off the dubber and get to work. Everything was very clearly delineated, but now there's a lot of stuff that editorial can do to clean things up that used to be strictly what the mixer would do. And and the same goes for sound in the sense that we're now doing jobs that only the mixer could do at one point. You know, we we have tools within Pro Tools, where we can completely change stuff. We can clean up dialogue. We just couldn't do that. On Mag, we had nothing. You basically, whatever it sounds like, that's what it sounds like until you get to the mix, and that's where all the tools were. Now we can do premixes, and we can come to a final mix with quite a lot of preparation done that the, normally you would spend hours doing on the mix stage. So. I mean, no. editors, editors mix and mixers edit to some extent also. It's, the jobs are all kind of, kind of merging in a way. It was interesting on Crouching Tiger, the fight scenes on that film, the action scenes, were all shot without sound. It looks like a big-budget movie, but it was a very low-budget movie. And in post-production, it was just me and one assistant sharing an Avid, and we locked picture in seven weeks. So... I decided right away that I was not going to attempt to make those scenes sound real because it would involve a ton of Foley and ADR and weapon hit, you know, a lot of stuff, a huge amount of work to make those scenes sound kind of kind of okay. It was going to require way more resources than we had, and I just made an executive decision before he even got back from, from China shooting it that we weren't going to do that because we couldn't. I mean, there just weren't weren't enough hours and not even close so instead I just I just worked on music and so I was imagining the sword hits in my head for months and Ang was imagining him in his head and Eugene was imagining him but we weren't all necessarily imagining the same thing the day we locked picture the day after we locked picture Ang went to China and didn't come back until we were already in pre-mixing because we were on such a tight schedule and so in the mix we Eugene just did an enormous amount of recutting. But, you know, initially we started putting sound effects because we could, you know, because it was kind of easy in the Avid, but then it came to be expected. And now it's like every time you show up at the studio, you have to go in and do a two-day temp mix, and it's kind of crazy. But in editorial, we, you know, we kind of feel like we have to do uh, a lot of sound work. And I know that there's directors that I work with that say, I can't look at this like this anymore. You have to you have to do this because I can't decide how to cut this until I hear the sound. And that happens too. And that can be with really, really experienced directors. They just it's just becoming more expected to have more sooner. I think 
all directors care about sound yeah. to some degree. It might be they might care more about they might think music does more than sound effects. Um, like I want to hear all the words, and that's what I generally push for. And I think most directors, especially writer directors, they definitely want to hear every word that they yeah. wrote. I mean, the, working with Ang, like every film he makes is completely different from yeah. the last one. So, and in post production, he's often very specific about he doesn't like this word, and I'll go back. You know, I'll change a bunch of word, uh, line readings during production, but then. With him, one of the big things we do, and sometimes it's over weeks and months, we'll go in and swap out words, swap out syllables. We do quite a lot of that just because he, sometimes he can't really articulate why he doesn't like a word, but it doesn't matter. It's just an opportunity to go find more, and uh, usually we have plenty, so uh, we swap out a lot of words here and there. I asked if working in 3D, which was the case with Life of Pi, changed the relationship between the sound and picture editor. You know, when we're when we're working on the films, we're rarely looking at it in 3D, unlike Tim, who in his editing room is often, quite often uh, looking at everything in 3D. and Quite always, actually. Pretty much always, right? Yeah. And for us, we're looking at it flat. And I'm, I'm for, my, for my part, I'm just kind of approaching it the way I would any other film. And then sometimes when you're on the mix stage and you see stuff, then then you get inspired to do different things. And... You know, I think spatially you can you can be a little broader. You can move things further afield, more in the surrounds. Um, it sort of lends itself to those kind of enhancements just because mm -hmm. of the depth and everything. Yeah, Ang asked, you know, early on, you know, what do we need to do different with 3D with sound? And I said, sound's always been 3D. Yes, exactly. You know, we've always used the entire space. What was different about that was it was our first Atmos film. Was that your first Atmos film? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Atmos is this system that Dolby has where you have speakers all over the ceiling and all up and down the walls and everywhere. So you can play sounds all over the place. So we had a lot of fun experimenting with that. You know, just in some places, just getting the sound of the air and the ocean coming from everywhere. But then specifically, there were scenes where there's storms and there's where we go underwater and all kinds of things where you can do great things with Atmos. It's great with and that music was a lot of fun. Too. Yeah, great way to move music around yeah. and have it coming from all directions. Yeah, there was a uh, a scene. There's a scene toward the end where there's a storm going on, and there's big music that needs to be up front. There's big sound effects with you know big, big lightning and screamed dialogue, <laughs> and you need to hear it all. You know nothing in the in the seven one we kind of took the the general sound effects out. There's, there were still some big punctuated ones for for Thunder, but everything else we kind of had to keep down. But in the Atmos, what was great is the center was just dialogue, and we, you know, the music, the effects were wider, and the music was entirely off the screen. So just having so much room to put things, we were able to have, you know, actually have all three of them kind of loud and still articulated and you could still hear everything yeah that's the great thing about you even 5-1 was a revelation in yeah. that that you could have dialogue and foley usually coming from the center but still being able to pan footsteps in and, and everything coming from the left and right but music is primarily left right with a little reverb in the surrounds and just the more the more you can keep things separate the more you the more dynamic you can make it the more you can hear because it's not all trying it's not all battling to come out of the same space. 
And what's nice, up until the film that we're just finishing now, Aang's next movie, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, I had always cut in stereo. And, you know, when you cut in stereo, you don't have the same kind of space. And for years I've been saying, I know this all sounds crowded now, but once, we have, once we're have, once we in 7-1, it'll sound great. But I never knew if I was telling the truth or not when I said that. So this film I cut in 5-1 because the room where we work is uh, actually a really good little screening room. We have a 12-foot screen and a good sound system. The 5-1 implementation wasn't, was a little shaky back then, but it's really good now in Media Composer. And some of what we had in this new film, there's some battle scenes. There's also, also a foot NFL halftime show. And we're on the field, not just in the halftime show, but most of the movie takes place there, to be able to you know, have the announcer in the surrounds with a slap and all that, to be able to do all that in the editing room and not say, oh, this will sound great someday. It's really wonderful, and I, I, I hope to never go back to cutting in stereo. It's really like being able to do your own titles and visual effects and you know whatever you can do in Avid. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a revelation whenever you can go to the next level and, and realize it right there, right yeah. then and there. You don't have to, to wait. I, I mean, I find that Tim and I are often aligned is that you know we want to hear every word. And Ang isn't always like that. And effects editors and music editors are not always like that. They, everybody wants to hear what they've done. And my big thing is that if somebody says, well, here, this line is just a throwaway. It doesn't really matter. I'll say, well, then take it out. Because if you're an audience member and somebody says something, they want to hear it, whether even if it's a throwaway line. And if they don't hear it, they're going to turn to the person next to them and say, what did he say? And then they're going to miss the next two lines. And it just that's one thing that, that I always fight for, and, and I feel Tim is an ally in that, is, is just when he was talking about the storm scene, the music editors like, and the composer are both there, and they're both like the score, you know, this should be about the score. And the sound effects editor wants to hear the, the thunderclaps and the huge waves and everything. And I want to hear the guy, what, like he's screaming something. He's, he's yelling does at it, God. Does it matter what he's it's saying? It's probably something you want to hear. And if you don't, even if you think it's not important, if, you know, if you didn't hear it, you'll think you missed something important. Exactly. So, and you, in this case, you would. Yeah. It's very important. Yeah, every, every word he says there is important. Yeah. You know, one interesting thing about everything in post-production, but particularly once you're in the mix, you're making final decisions. You know, early on in a movie, it's like, what if? And we could do this, and we could do this. And as time goes on, all those what ifs go away. And eventually it's a, no, this is the movie, and everything else isn't the movie. And so, you know, the mix is where a lot of those things we've been thinking about for a long time, all of a sudden they get carved in stone. And, um, you know, that can be kind of a harrowing process, or it can be really fun. Uh, usually at that point in a movie, you're getting kind of bored with it. You know, I've seen it so many times. So it's a chance to then do something creative again. And there is a danger in that, because usually the thing that's really new is the music. Because you're hearing the music, you know, often really for the first time in the mix. And sometimes there can be a tendency to get too caught up in that just because it's the only thing that isn't so boring because right. you've you've heard everything else and seen everything else and the music is brand new and sometimes you make mistakes and then you have to go back and, and fix them once you see them in context. 
I asked him to talk about starting out with director Ang Lee and how their collaborative process has evolved over time. But Ang's first film, Pushing Hands, you know, that was Good Machine was just starting. We edited that on 26th Street between 10th and 11th, which, you know, now that area is art galleries and dance studios. The 1991, that was not what that area was like. It was, it was hookers and crackheads, and that was Good Machine's offices. And we edited Pushing Hands on film in a closet, literally in a closet off of a noisy production office. That's kind of where we started. And it didn't really feel like we were part of anything because it was a movie that was for a Taiwanese audience. There was no, no thought of an American release. It kind of felt like a hobby. You know, it didn't feel like, like making a real movie. And I had worked on, been working on you know, real movies at Sound One before that, but I was trying to, this seemed like something I wanted to do and uh, it was an opportunity to, to cut picture. And uh, we cut uh, The Wedding Banquet in the same place in 1992 on an Avid, believe it or not, that was certainly the first film cut in New York on an Avid and maybe anywhere. Uh, I'm not quite sure the the timeline there. But I cut all of the production tracks and music in the Avid. And we then took it to Sound One, set it up in the machine room in the in our mix studio, in Studio D, and had to lay off two tracks at a time because that's all you could, you could only monitor two tracks. You had to lay off two tracks at a time to an analog 16-track recorder that we had to trick into chasing the Avid and then we used that as our playback source. At one point, I walked in the, into the machine room, and you know every engineer at Sound One is standing there with a patch cable in one hand and scratching their head with the other, trying to figure out what to do with this newfangled gizmo and how to get the sound out of there into some format that they could use. What was interesting in the hallways at Sound One was down the hall, some real movie with some big shot editor was working. You know, Marty Scorsese was down in the corner and Jonathan Demme was over there. And, you know, all there were actually like real movies because some of what we were doing didn't feel like movies of, the, of that caliber at all. Yeah, um, I once took a job at Sound One that I didn't get paid for just to be there, just to be seen and, and, and meet people and, and stuff like that. Just it, it was a really low budget film that a friend of mine produced that had virtually no money but they said we'll pay for your room and your equipment and I said deal just you know I didn't want to be forgotten I had worked there on a couple of jobs and I wanted to be thought of as um, a choice and a regular person so and he wanted to be one of those guys you see in the hall in sound one exactly I mean, that's what we all wanted to be back then it's worth mentioning that sound one was the preeminent audio post-production company on the east coast for more than 40 years it was located in the historic Brill Building in Midtown Manhattan and hosted ADR sessions, sound mixes, and sound and picture edits for clients like Bob Fosse, Woody Allen, Martin Scorsese, the Coen Brothers, Spike Lee, Ang Lee, Errol Morris, and Ken Burns. You know, when that was finished, and again, it kind of felt like we weren't really making a real movie because... It hit Pushing Hands. It was a huge hit in Taiwan, but I wasn't in Taiwan, so I didn't really notice. And then when Wedding Banquet became a big hit in the United States, all of a sudden it was like, oh, I'm actually a movie editor. I'm actually editing real movies. I didn't, I didn't know that. And Good Machine was on the verge of going under. 
Wedding Banquet won the grand prize of the Berlin Film Festival that year, and they were able to make a very good sale on it. If that hadn't happened, Good Machine never would have existed. They were right on the verge of shutting down because it's a tough business. So that that's the that's the movie that saved the company. And we've been doing this, you know, I'm the only editor. I mean, he had never worked with another editor before me, and I've cut all of his films except but, for um, Brokeback Mountain. That was a scheduling problem, yeah. I have a good story about that if I can break in. Ang always takes all of us out for a family-style Chinese meal pretty much at the end of every job, and very gracious, and, you know, he invites everybody to, that worked on the film in post-production to come, and uh, we were leaving the Brill Building on our way to Chinatown, and I was riding in the same car as Ang, and, and I look over at him, and I said, what? And he said, I feel like I'm cheating on my wife, because Tim <laughs> isn't here. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was strange not cutting that film, um, and, and I was in most Los Angeles. People think you did. Yeah, I was in Los Angeles at the time. He promised me after Hulk. He promised me he was going to take a year off, and I committed to something else. And then uh, Brokeback came together very quickly, and we talked about it. I almost left the other movie, but that kind of would have been bad. Um, so in that sense, clearly we have a we have a thing that helps it helps us get it done. Uh, we've done it so much now. We know how to. We know what to do in the editing room. We know how to sit down and get it done because, you know, it's just the two of you in the editing room. You can goof off all day. You can tell stories all day. You, there's nobody. There's nobody cracking the whip. You need a, a system, and so I've developed a system that he's used to, and I'm used to the way that he interacts with my system. When I've edited for other people, I've had to change my system. I've had to make adjustments. You always kind of figure out what's right for the footage and what's right for the director and what's right for the project, and it's not always the same. A number of years ago, I did Gosford Park for Robert Altman. Again, about as un-ang as a director can be. You know, some of the films that got me thinking about actually going into film were Altman films, like McCabe and Mrs. Miller from, from way back when. And so then to get a call to come cut an Altman film was such a treat. But um, when I got that footage, I thought I was losing my mind because everything I knew about how to assemble a movie didn't work. I had to completely rethink my approach. There wasn't any normal coverage. There were They shot everything with two cameras that were always drifting around, sometimes motivated, sometimes not, never in the same place from take to take, or often not in the same place from take to take. You know, these big table, dining table scenes with 15 people around a table and servants coming and going. They'd shoot it in an afternoon just with the cameras drifting up and down and they get what they get and hand it over. So it was really an interesting challenge and then Rachel Getting Married was like that but even more so. It's just the way that he shot that movie was so on the verge of documentary shooting and so different from take to take. You know, it's in. It's really. It's nice getting pushed that way. You know, to have to do something different. And both of those films had, you know, sixteen tracks of audio that you have to then go through and and sort through. Yeah, those were those were fun ones and very unang experiences. I asked Phil to talk about how he got started in the New York film industry in the nineteen eighties. Really, when when I started, 
and got into the uh, feature sound editor role. I was working in a place called August Film, a little place where there, and there were lots of those in the uh, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s that, that did commercials, they did editing, they, there were, sometimes they had a lot of people on staff, sometimes it was just a few people. You know, I worked both as a picture editor and a sound editor. I cut a feature film there and then turned around and was the supervising sound editor on it. And then I met Skip Lovesay, who was um, had a similar background at a different place. And one of the reasons we bonded is because we, we felt like we didn't really have mentors, per se, on sound. We just kind of figured it out on our own because we didn't kind of like come up through the feature world as apprentices and then assistants and everything. We were just kind of thrust into doing it our own way. You know, I feel self-taught in, in many ways. I think a lot of people feel self-taught. And I was just lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time to have the opportunity to teach myself to do it. Because, I, you know, I worked with picture editors mostly, and I was a picture editor. And no, there was nobody there to say, this is how you do sound. It just was, you just have, it's like sink or swim kind of thing. And I loved cutting dialogue and Skip sort of felt the same way about um, sort of breaking things down, having people that like to do certain things that were good at those things only do those things. We also started recording our own Foley and not just going somewhere else to do it uh, and gradually getting more and more and more control over the sound of the, of the whole film. And, you know, that developed over a, a period of about, 10 years, and now we don't work that much differently than we did 15 years ago, I guess. When I worked on, uh, like, I, again, pinched myself many times because I basically took directors that I had admired that got me into film, and I got to work with so many of them. Mike Nichols, Arthur Penn, I worked on a job with him, Ulu Grossbard. I mean, these are all the people, like, some of my very favorite films, and of course Martin Scorsese and and Spike Lee as he was coming up. I guess Do the Right Thing was his third film, and that was the first thing I worked worked on him with. And I, God, I I've probably done more Spike projects than any other because he does a lot of commercials and shorts and music things, and Martin Scorsese does stuff like that too. So between the two of them, just they can almost keep one sound editor busy. A lot of things changed, a lot of things got shaped, and of course editing digitally rather than editing on mag was a whole another thing. I just was used to editing on mag and I wasn't a big computer geek, so for me it was a bit of a transition. So naturally I was the one at our company that had to make the decision of what machine we were going to use. And so I picked the one that was the most like editing on mag and that sort of became the de facto system for for pretty much New York. Uh, it was called uh, Sonic, Sonic Solutions, and that was sort of a, at that time, that was the system that made the most sense to use. Pro Tools existed then, but it was crude compared to Sonic. Mm -hmm. Sonic did all these things that Pro Tools didn't do. Yes. And I think the first film that we played back directly into the mix was the Hudsucker Proxy. And that was from Sonic. 
Jeremy Koch, who was running Sound One at that point, vowed to get a number of those machines in order to sort of accommodate us, and that that sort of became the trend. It was probably not till early 2000s when we everyone sort of switched over to Pro Tools because yeah. they just kept improving it, and Sonic just sort of dropped the ball, and it, it, they they weren't really implementing the things that we were asking and. Pro Tools really did, and it, it's great. I still love Pro Tools. It's amazing, and you can do so much with it, and, uh, and everybody uses it, which is great. I asked Tim and Phil to talk about how changes in the film industry impacted their relationship as sound editor and picture editor. One of the things that's really changed is, you know, you used to lock picture and then start mixing a month later, two Six months later. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Um, now you're usually cutting picture while you're mixing. You yeah. know, it's 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 very common that you start mixing before you've locked. And it's very uncommon it's, not to do that yeah, at this point. It's, Pretty much every film I've I've worked on in the last several years has been hasn't been locked when yeah. I started. It's very inefficient. You wind up, you know, you do your premixes. And then you have to spend two days going back and updating the premixes. Yeah, the film that I'm working on now, we premixed all the dialogue, and while we were premixing the dialogue, they were recutting the film. So every reel had many, many, many changes in it. And when something's premixed and you cut a hunk out, then the dissolves you made don't work anymore. Um, fortunately, one of the great things about modern times is you can have many, many tracks in a premix and, and things are separate enough that you can blend things back together easier. Uh, when this used to happen on mag, it was it was horrendous because you're, you're cutting only one piece of film and you could A and B things and that was about the extent of of the you know what you could do. But uh, it's still it's it's frustrating. You've figured everything out and then it, it all kind of gets destroyed. One of the things that's happened is too is that the whole concept of, of previewing films and 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 relentlessly screening it and getting the audience to sign off on it before the film comes out and affect everything has changed everything for us. And I was lucky enough that the first many many films actually that I worked on with with Spike Lee, with Martin Scorsese, with the Coen Brothers, they didn't really have to screen their films. They didn't really have to do previews. And once that became sort of standard, and now I think pretty much everybody has to do it, it it's sort of like you're letting the audience decide what your film is going to be rather than the filmmaker deciding what the film is going to be. And I think that's really hampered creativity. It messes with the budgets because you're you're spending all this time working on stuff that's just temporary. It's not you know, the final project. You know, it makes the jobs go longer if that's what you're into. But for me, I'd much rather have a fairly close to locked picture to start out with and really be able to do our thing and help the director with their vision instead of helping somebody in, uh, you know, Secaucus uh, <laughs> at a mini mall just decide what, what your film's going to be. Yeah, Life of Pi, had, we had a bunch of previews. Of course, the visual effects weren't done, which complicates it. And the film did okay, but the previews were 
didn't, you know, thinking back on what was said during those previews, there was really almost nothing there that was useful. That was valuable. Yeah. Right. You know, the one film, I mean, what one thing that was great about this crazy tight schedule we had on Crouching Tiger was that was basically a Chinese film. I mean, most of the money came from Asia. Sony Classics and Sony were involved, but Columbia was involved. But we didn't, I mean, we screened for them once. And we really got no input from anybody. You know, we screened it without subtitles because we screened on film to a bunch of Americans a bunch of times. Fine. Uh, there were some Chinese people who came and they liked it. And really the first time an audience saw that was at its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. We really didn't know, but it worked out pretty well. It worked out kind of okay. I mean, it, it, it used to be that most projects were like that. Yeah. Most of them, the yeah. majority of them, yeah, there, people didn't preview films. No, you'd have friends and family screenings, and then you'd talk afterwards, and you know you learn things sitting in a room full of people, but you don't really learn anything from focus groups and and all of that. One of the things I find that I mean, this is why I'm in New York, probably mostly. I don't know about you, Tim, but. We're not under the thumb of the studios so much. And it's such a business in L.A. Every person you meet is somehow involved in in the film business. And we just get left alone a lot more. I mean, it, it varies from job yeah. to job. The studio system is great in certain ways, but there's usually whoever you're answering to is answering to somebody else who's answering to somebody else and people are afraid to make decisions or they make bad decisions and because they're just waiting for someone else to tell them that whether this is okay or whether it's not okay and the directors that um, a lot of the directors I worked with have sort of rebelled against that and they're they make independent films and there's just a lot more freedom and um, I envy their large mixing stages. I wish that we had more of those here. And there's definitely very talented editors and mixers and, and everything in L.A. too. But I just I like the freedom that we have here. We don't have people breathing down our necks quite as much. That's what makes New York great, I think. There is a sense... You know, sometimes you hear uh, people talking about sound and talking to mixers. There's kind of an East Coast sound and a West Coast sound. Like on Hulk, the West Coast sound would be when Hulk smashes uh, a lab table, would be kaboom, big boom with a lot of subwoofer. Whereas the East Coast sound would be hearing every little bottle and, and jar and go flying around and bouncing around and spinning. Yes. You know, that more less heavy, more articulated sound. Uh, the last film that I mixed in L.A. was Unbroken. And early on, there was a, a sense from, you know, the mixer started giving it a West Coast sound because the, the, the first day that, that they started doing a temp mix for something. And then the director and I went in and listened to it and didn't like that direction at all. And we we changed it, and then, you know, I took the whole film in a completely different direction. And the mixers were really happy. I mean, they were doing what they were supposed to do, which was give it a certain kind of bombastic, big sound, but it wasn't right for the movie. We didn't think. So, you know, the mixers I've worked with in Los Angeles are fantastic. 
but it's there's a, a a bit of a different sensibility sometimes. Yeah, I like I like giving it that New York sound. And I should point out, Unbroken got was nominated for both sound editing and mixing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Hugo was mixed here in New York, and Life of Pi was mixed in L.A., but with all of us and sort of, I would say, our sensibilities. And Yeah, and we liked those mixers so much that we brought them to New York to do Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. I completely agree. There, the, the New York way and the L.A. way are quite different approaches, and... Th- those kind of films. So there just aren't that many big action films that get done in New York. The, so I think that's that's what set the tone. Up until Hugo, there had never been a New York sound editor that was nominated for Best Sound Editing. Really? Not Eugene and I were the very first wow. to ever even be nominated. And the fact that we won the first time out was pretty amazing. Yeah. And then uh, got nominated again the next year for Life of Pi, which we was robbed. We didn't win. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what my mom says too. Yeah, absolutely. You probably have at least three or four people besides (laughs) us that think that. But um, what is happening on a certain level? I I think that every generation, like um, Fran Leibowitz had this great joke about, um, like doesn't matter when you lived in New York, it was always better before. And it's like if you lived here in 1826, then somebody would come along, well, you should have been here in 1817, if you think this is great. And uh, she said, you know what was different? You were young. And when you're young, everything's great, everything's new. And you look back on it and think that was it. But in truth, like, yes, things are, the, the industry is changing. I've heard that eight billion times. And it's true, but you adapt. And it doesn't, I don't think it has to affect craft. I think you work faster. And, and you know, it, it, affects, it affects budgets. It affects how much time you have. I mean, the thing that Tim and I were talking about, just having to make so many changes, I think can, can affect things. Because you, you start to lose track. You start to like, oh, was that even in this version? And where are we now? And But... In general, I think I think people, you know, you just have to adapt. You have to figure out a way to still be able to do a job that you're proud of, that you feel worked out, that you feel like you got to put some of yourself into, and you just do it a little bit faster. And maybe I love to work with people who don't really care. Um, the union would kill me for this, but that don't really, they, they just like maybe they'll come in on a Saturday and do something and Maybe they don't show up on Tuesday, but because it's not about just coming in and working from nine to six and getting a paycheck, it's about doing whatever needs to be done to move the job forward and and to be happy with it. And I I'm very lucky I know to be able to mostly work that way. I mean when I'm when we're on the mix stage, it's nine to six and you have to be there between those hours. But when I'm prepping a job, I might come in and work up. 15-hour day on my own and then not show up until 3 in the afternoon. And I like to come, I like to work really early. So sometimes I start at 6 in the morning and then I leave at 3. And if somebody calls me and I'm not there at 3, where were you? And I said, well, where were you at 6 when I was there? (laughs) And that's another thing about New York and, and, and not having anyone breathing down your neck. You can kind of, you can really do what you know 
you need to do and get it done and suit yourself and do it in your own way, at your own pace. And I just think that's great. I think that's really important. Frame by Frame is produced by Isabel Sederni and Ben Baker. The audio engineer for today's session was Rick Schnupp. Stay tuned for the next episode of Frame by Frame, featuring sound editor Maurice Schell, picture editor Peter Frank, and re-recording mixer Lee Dichter, talking about their work together on Sidney Lumet's The Verdict, and how New York filmmaking has evolved since then. In New York, this is Frame by Frame.